today on the Medical Humanities Podcast. The death of Vincent van Gogh. Suicide or manslaughter? Vincent van Gogh's biography reads like a gothic novel at times. Vincent, the crazed and frenetic young man who tried to become a priest and was actually asked to leave the priesthood, the man whose own mother distanced herself from him and called him a madman, declaring his artwork ridiculous, the man who, somehow, mystifyingly, was blessed with the undying love of his kind and supportive brother Theo and sister-in-law Joe. Vincent, the mental patient, locked behind barred windows through which he drew inspiration for Starry Night, the man who despised his illness and experienced periods of hopefulness and positivity, according to the letters he wrote to his brother, Vincent, who sketched and painted and delved into his work as though it alone provided the shelter and safety he couldn't find in the outside world, Vincent, the man who argued with his artist friend Gauguin, and in a fit of rage, as we are told, sliced off a part of his own ear, spraying the little yellow room with blood, and later presenting the ear to a local prostitute as a gift. Vincent, the man who, in the summer of 1890, committed suicide by shooting himself in the gut. Or did he? For many years now, several investigators have looked into the question of whether Vincent actually pulled the trigger himself. Pulitzer Prize winners Stephen Neffay and Gregory White-Smith, whose 2011 book Van Gogh, A Life, goes into great detail on the subject. They believe that Van Gogh was killed accidentally, possibly by 16-year-old René Secretan, who actually came forward in 1956, when he was 87 years old, to detail his connection with Van Gogh and to, quote, set the record straight. For now, Let's take a look at both sides of the argument, the suicide as cause of death argument and the manslaughter argument. We'll start with evidence for suicide. Before we can even consider suicide, it's important to understand the magnitude of Vincent's mental illness and how it affected his quality of life. Through his artwork and his many writings, in letters both sent and unsent, Vincent's character emerges as an earnest, thoughtful young man who could only stand by and witness his own mental frailty without having the power to overcome it. No one doubts he suffered greatly from his mental illness. Without this disease, he once said, imagine what I could have done. He knew that his passions and violent energy made living a normal life almost impossible for him. He was mercurial and often scattered, following his passions to Arles in the south of France and elsewhere. Love eluded him, and even friendships proved impossible to maintain, leaving him a desperately lonely man, who sought solace from the turbulence of his mind in painting, using bright, garish colors and thick, impasto brushstrokes to render his vision of the world around him. So what was his illness, exactly? Vincent's mental disorder had been called by many names in his lifetime acute mania with generalized delirium among them. But during his 1889 stay at the asylum of Saint-Paul-de-Mosol in Saint-Rémy, 
Vincent was diagnosed with a kind of epilepsy. This was not the familiar kind of epilepsy, which resulted in spasms and seizures of the body, but rather a kind of mental epilepsy, which caused the mind to seize and to bring on manic, dramatic behavior. There was no easy name for this affliction at the time. French doctors called it latent epilepsy or larval epilepsy because sufferers could live somewhat normal lives during the long periods of dormancy between episodes. Or they called it masked epilepsy because of its hidden causes. Some doctors refused to call it epilepsy at all, choosing instead intellectual disease because of how it affected the higher brain functions. They still imposed the categories of grand mal and petit mal on the non-physical seizures, though, which further confused the issue. Dr. Félix Ray, a young intern at the St. Paul Asylum, was the first to advance the idea of a kind of epilepsy and was able to describe the symptoms to Vincent and improve his outlook on the condition. There are 50,000 epileptics in France, Vincent wrote to Theo, only 4,000 of whom are confirmed, so it is not so extraordinary. Ray explained how these mental seizures could result in hallucinations that drove sufferers to self-harm, such as biting their tongues or cutting off their ears. Latent epileptics, as Ray seemed to eventually settle on, had a, quote, disposition towards irritation or anger, which astonished and frightened family and friends with their changeable moods, easy excitability, furious work habits, and exaggerated mental activity. Attacks were often preceded by profound mental suffering, with some patients describing feeling as though they were trapped in a nightmare or falling into a chasm. And when the attacks came, the sufferer could experience out-of-body sensations leading to violent rages and sometimes homicidal or suicidal behavior. After an attack, the sufferer would lose consciousness and often all memory of what had happened and would then spend the next days or weeks in an epileptic stupor of aimless, drifting, ill-tempered ennui and grinding remorse. Each attack lowered the threshold for another one, and it would then begin all over again. Several years after Vincent's beautiful, swirling, starry night, the American psychologist William James, brother of the novelist Henry James, called latent epileptic fits nerve storms, surges of abnormal nerve impulses triggered by a handful of epileptic neurons that either began in or caused the most damage to the most sensitive areas of the brain, namely the limbic system and the temporal lobe. Perception, personality, emotion, and memory were all assaulted by these storms and never fully recovered from each attack. Alcohol, poor diet, and stress could increase the likelihood of an attack, as could any overstimulation of the affected brain areas. Seizures could be triggered by the slightest stimuli, even from images conjured up in the mind from simply reading a book. Today, Vincent would likely be diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, but at the time, his doctors were only beginning to understand the disorder and to see possible hereditary links. The head of the St. Paul Asylum, one Dr. Perron, quickly concurred with Ray's diagnosis of epilepsy, especially after interviewing Vincent and learning that the artist's grandfather, aunts, uncles, and cousins all had epilepsy, and that at least two of them had, quote, died of a mental disease. 
This was during the era of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, when the medical profession was beginning to see the hereditary links in some diseases, and when many doctors were convinced that all mental deficits were caused by gradual genetic deterioration. I have every reason to believe, Dr. Perron wrote, therefore, to Theo, that the attack which Vincent has had is the result of a state of epilepsy. Vincent was heartened by having his troubles diagnosed, since it relieved him of the guilt he felt for not being able to support himself, and gave him a sense of self-command, as he called it. Once you know what it is, he said to Theo, then you can do something to prevent your being taken unawares by the anguish or the terror. He spent the first months of the summer of 1889 quite happily and even serenely in Saint-Rémy, describing his tranquility and peace of mind to his brother, and pouring himself into painting. I think my place is here, he said. It's been almost a whole month since I came here, and not once have I had the slightest desire to be elsewhere. Only the wish to work is getting stronger. His serenity was not to last. By the following April, just after his 37th birthday, he and Theo decided Vincent should leave the asylum at Saint-Rémy and try moving closer to Paris. His attacks and episodes of bleak, amnesiac darkness had returned, and Dr. Perron had decided to withhold Theo's letters from him, perhaps worst of all, to no longer allow him to paint. During one episode, Vincent had tried to eat his paints, which Perron took as a suicide attempt. But even in his relatively stable periods, he was changeable and mercurial, convincing himself before he went to see his brother in Paris that he would love nothing more than to live there with him forever and paint the commonplace beauty he would find in the city. Not three days later, he was on a train for the countryside, his paints in hand, certain that he would never be able to live in a city again. In the months before his death, Vincent had moved to the idyllic little riverside town of Auvers, 20 miles north of Paris, and had settled on the idea of convincing his brother Theo, sister-in-law Joe, and infant nephew, Vincent as well, to join him there. He had found a, quote, doctor for artists, a man named Gaucher, who had treated Manet, Renoir, and Cézanne, among others, but whom Vincent declared to be, quote, sicker than I am, drafting a letter to Theo saying, when one blind man leads another blind man, don't they both fall into a ditch? He never sent that letter, deciding instead that Theo might be more readily convinced to move to Auvers if Vincent could assure him that he was under the care of a competent doctor. I feel that he understands us perfectly, he told Theo, and that he will work with us to the best of his power, without reserve, for the love of art, for art's sake. Vincent painted the long street of the village, capturing its flower markets and vegetable stalls, its thatched roofs and charming cottages, and perhaps most famously, the church, with its almost joyful, if slightly wonky, buttresses. He was engaging in a kind of propaganda for the place, as if designing a brochure to help convince his brother to make the move. As much as he tried to convince Theo in letters, urging him to move his family to the healthier, quieter countryside for little Vincent's sake, he used the medium of oil paint to subtly work on his brother, too. Vibrant, healthy colors, the scenery bursting with life. This must be better than busy, dirty, noisy Paris, the paintings seemed to insist. If only Theo and Joe and their baby would move out to the little house Vincent wanted to rent in Auvers, they could all live happily together. 
or so his letters implied. Theo remained noncommittal, knowing better than Vincent that such an arrangement would never work. In general, Vincent seemed happy and optimistic that summer. It can't be forgotten that latent epilepsy does include long periods of somewhat normal behavior, and it's possible that moving to Auvers and cherishing the hope that Theo and his family might join him was enough to give him a short respite before the demons began to torture him again. That's the ultimate question. Had his epileptic attacks resumed later that summer? Was he depressed enough by them, tormented and exhausted enough by them, to finally take his own life on that hot summer day in July, witnessed only by crows and the gently waving grass? Did he really pause in the middle of his painting and point a pistol at his own abdomen and fire? It is true that wild, unpredictable, and sudden mood changes are often the symptoms of latent epilepsy. Sufferers may be cheerful and optimistic one moment, tormented and agitated the next. It is also well known that the apathetic phase following an attack eventually reverses completely, leading to enhanced excitability, intense emotions, whether good or bad, and increasing irritability, aggressiveness, and even violence, starting the whole cycle again. Perhaps Vincent began the morning of July 28th in good spirits, fully intending to lose himself in painting for the day, only to be overcome by feelings of misery and despair so intractable that suicide seemed like the only way to escape the pain. But is this what actually happened? Much of the evidence for Vincent's suicide comes from statements made by him before he died, the testimony of witnesses who observed him, wounded and bloodied, staggering back to his bedroom, and the well-known mental illness that plagued him most of his life. And these proofs are compelling indeed. According to witnesses, Vincent stated, Do not accuse anyone else. I have done it myself. And I want to die. Dr. Gaucher, the artist's doctor of Auvers, declared his death an agonizing 29 hours later a suicide. He noted it on the death certificate and referred to suicide explicitly when writing to Theo a couple of weeks later. The Catholic Church in Auvers refused to allow a funeral service for Vincent on the grounds that suicide was a sin. On the funeral notice, Theo was even forced to cross out the name of the church at the last minute. Theo, who had been at his side as he died, wrote despondently to his wife, Joe that, quote, one of his last words was, this is how I wanted to go, and it took a few moments, and then it was over, and he found the peace he hadn't been able to find on earth. Vincent's friends also believed he had intentionally killed himself. Paul Gauguin would write in his memoir years later that Vincent had, quote, shot himself in the stomach, and Émile Bernard, Vincent's closest friend, would write a detailed account of the event, saying, quote, he killed himself. On Sunday evening, he went into the countryside around Auvers, placed his easel against a haystack, and went behind the chateau and fired a revolver shot at himself. Vincent had, quote, done it in complete lucidity with a, quote, wish to die. Furthermore, the police did not investigate his death as foul play. The innkeeper's 13-year-old daughter, Adeline Ravoux, claimed that her father had frequently spoken about Van Gogh and that the artist had told the police, what I have done is nobody else's business. I am free to do what I like with my own body. A badly corroded La Faucheur 
revolver was discovered in 1960 in the area where Vincent was believed to have suffered the wound, and although it was never absolutely verified, it nevertheless sold at auction in 2019 for more than £160,000. The conjecture surrounding this gun is that if it was in fact the gun that killed Van Gogh, it could only have been a weapon of self-harm, falling to the ground as the wounded artist fell. If it had been used by another's hand, even accidentally, surely that person would have taken the trouble to throw it in the nearby river was, and not leave it lying casually around for anyone to find. Apart from the gun and its questionable provenance, it must be said that all of the above testimonies and stories derive from what Vincent himself actually said. He chose to maintain that he had shot himself out of a desire to die, and given his famous ear-slicing incident, everyone simply took him at his word. He was known to be a mentally disturbed man, and therefore there was no reason to question his motives or the truth of what he was saying. But it does, unfortunately, mean that all of the supposed proofs of the suicide theory aren't really proof at all. All of the above sprang from an assertion made by Van Gogh only, an assertion that was very believable to anyone who knew him, but may not have actually been the truth. After the break, the case for manslaughter. I mentioned at the top of the episode that there has been much debate about the actual cause of Vincent van Gogh's death. In their 2011 book, Van Gogh, A Life, Nafa and Smith detail several facts and conclusions that make it seem more and more likely that Vincent did not pull the trigger himself. Throughout his life, even during his worst episodes, he was vehemently opposed to suicide, often writing to Theo that, quote, it was the act of a dishonest man. He also wrote that even at his lowest, he would not seek his own death, but would do nothing to stop it if it should occur. Furthermore, in the days before his death, he had placed an order for more paints and had written Theo a hopeful, optimistic letter. No autopsy was performed, and no note was ever found. But there are other, more concrete reasons to doubt his death was a suicide. Firstly, it's widely assumed that Vincent aimed the gun at his chest and fired, but that he missed vital organs and staggered back to the Revu Inn where he was staying, sought medical attention, and died 29 hours later. The immediate question that springs to mind is this. If he were intent on killing himself, why would he not shoot himself in the head, the source of all his suffering? Nafa and Smith assert that 98% of suicides by gun are the results of shots to the head. Furthermore, once he realized that shooting himself in the chest hadn't done the job, why would he not then shoot himself again, to end the considerable pain he must have been in? Why would he make his way back to the inn and seek medical attention? Then there's the report from the two doctors who examined him once he returned to his room. They determined that the small-caliber bullet had been fired at an oblique angle, not straight on, and from some distance, not close up, as it had not exited the body. Vincent knew nothing about guns, and although the innkeeper's daughter, Adeline Revu, claimed that he had borrowed her father's gun to scare away crows, no gun was ever found. Besides, Van Gogh loved crows, 
considering them an omen of good luck. Other witnesses in Auvers, interviewed decades after his death, even refuted the theory that he shot himself in the wheat field behind the chateau. It would have been a steep, rocky descent down a laneway to get from the field to the inn, and for Vincent to achieve this while suffering an excruciating gunshot wound to the gut, and to pass by several busy restaurants unobserved, is next to impossible. A search of the field the next day came up empty, including, most tellingly, the fact that Vincent's easel, paints, and satchel had disappeared as well. There is no reasonable answer as to how his equipment vanished, since he would have been in no condition to pack everything up and then dispose of them, nor would he have had any reason to. Two villagers independently declared that the shooting had occurred behind a dung heap in a small farmyard which lay in the opposite direction to the wheat field. This farmyard was down a laneway off the Rue Boucher, which was a shorter, less difficult walk back to the inn, and might account for how Vincent was able to return there. A dung heap lacks the elegance of a sunlit field of wheat, of course, but its location at least provides a more plausible story. But perhaps the most compelling argument for manslaughter comes from the account of René Secretin, who, in 1956, came forward to set the record straight about Van Gogh. The movie Lust for Life, starring Kirk Douglas, had just been released, and Secretin was so incensed by the depiction of Van Gogh as a healthy, handsome Hollywood star that he felt he had to speak up. Secretin was 16 in 1890, a rambunctious Parisian kid who came to Auvers every summer with his father and older brother. He remembers being obsessed with Buffalo Bill at the time and bringing along his cowboy outfit complete with fringed vest, cowboy hat, and adding to it an old and unreliable three sixty caliber pistol that he claimed he borrowed from Gustave Ravou, the innkeeper. His gang of teenagers did everything they could to torment and harass the, quote, crazy Dutchman, including small pranks like putting salt in his coffee and putting chili powder on his brushes, knowing he often sucked on them while thinking. They even put a snake in his paint box, which frightened him so much he fainted. Vincent apparently bore these insults with magnanimity and often shared drinks with the boys when in town. Vincent was well accustomed to being tormented and teased wherever he went and probably saw Secretan and his crowd as nothing out of the ordinary. He enjoyed talking to Secretan's older brother Gustav, who, in stark contrast to his younger brother, enjoyed talking about writing and art, and this is perhaps why he was in Secretan's company so often. In spite of admitting freely that he had harassed and tormented Van Gogh, Secretin never admitted to shooting Van Gogh. His story became less clear and even contradictory when it came to discussing the artist's death. First, Secretin claimed he had only learned of the shooting from a Paris newspaper after he had left Auvers. No such newspaper story was ever uncovered. Then he claimed that his gun, which he always carried with him in his rucksack, had been stolen on the day of Vincent's death, placing he, Secretan, back in Auvers. In the 1930s, art historian John Rewald interviewed Auvers villagers, who told him that, quote, two young boys had accidentally shot Van Gogh, and then had cleared up his gear and been rushed out of Auvers and back to Paris by their father. It should be noted that immediately following the death of Van Gogh, and right up until 1956 and Secretan's interview, Adeline Ravou, the innkeeper's daughter, continued to insist that the Wheatfield suicide story was true. 
However, Ravu's story changed several times during this period and was always based on hearsay. She was not in the room with him when he died, and every version of her story consisted only of things she claimed her father had told her. Finally, among Vincent's many statements to police and others during his agonizing last hours was his assertion, do not accuse anyone else, I have done this myself. Why would Vincent say such a thing, unless he had in fact been shot, accidentally or not, by bullies who had been tormenting him all summer? Nafa and Smith conjecture that Vincent did not want anyone to face charges, even the youngsters who had harassed him. And there is possible precedent for this kind of thinking. In their 2009 book, Van Gogh's Ear, Paul Gauguin and the Pact of Silence, authors Dr. Hans Kaufmann and Dr. Rita Wildegen claim that his famous ear-slicing incident was not self-inflicted. The book claims that during Vincent's well-known heated argument with Gauguin, it was Gauguin, an expert fencer, who sliced off Vincent's ear with a fencing sword. Not wanting to get his friend into trouble or lose the friendship he desperately needed, Vincent claimed he had done it himself. All in all, the manslaughter theory explains many of the inconsistencies and mysteries surrounding Vincent's death. It explains the oblique entry of the bullet into the gut instead of the head, and it explains how it was fired from a distance. It also explains why Van Gogh didn't try again, so to speak. It explains why the gun and his paints were never found, and why no one saw him stumble through town from the wheat field. It also explains why he sought medical attention when he got to the inn, and why he left no note or farewell letter to his brother. Nafa and Smith believe that at some point after it became clear how serious his injury was, Van Gogh was content to die. He welcomed the end of his suffering, as he had often told his brother he would, and was prepared to let everyone believe he had taken his own life. So what do you think? Do you believe the established narrative? Do you believe Vincent van Gogh shot himself while painting in a sunny wheat field one day? Or do you believe he was accidentally shot by a show-off bully behind a dung heap down the road from his inn? Please let me know in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. And if you'd like to help support the show, please consider joining my Patreon for early ad-free access and bonus content. Thanks for listening. Join me again for another intriguing look at the world of medicine in culture, history, and the arts.